Listeners, welcome to Out of the Box. I'm your host, Jonathan Russo. Back with our Through the Marxist Lens series with Professor Clyde Barrow. Today, we will be focusing on an interesting topic of great importance, voter suppression. From my cursory understanding of Marx's writings, I came away with the impression that Marx was convinced that the capitalist ruling class would do whatever it could to remain in power. The one percenters, if you will, would enlist the media, cultural institutions, religious ones, and even academia to shape the narrative that favored the capitalist status quo. When necessary, it would use the legislative and judicial branches to get tough against anyone advocating for socialism or communism. From that flow the police and the army as tools of repression. For sure, we saw in the United States every aspect of society enlisted to delegitimize budding socialism in the 19th century. Historically, we witnessed tremendous pushback in America with anti-strike, anti-unionization laws in the 19th and 20th centuries. Horrific violence between police and the army and pro-union strikers broke out as a result. This brings us to today and the issue of voter suppression as an instrument of the GOP's desire to block all efforts at social and economic reform. What would Marx have to say about this effort? Professor Barrow, your thoughts. Well, Marx would have a lot to say about this particular thing. Uh, in fact, he talked a lot about democracy in his writings, and I'll just uh, cite you a couple of his most insightful statements on political democracy, one of which comes from the Communist Manifesto, which he released in 1848. And he says, the first step in the revolution by the working class is to raise the proletariat to the position of ruling class to win the battle of democracy. In other words, Marx very clearly thought democracy was the first step in any type of transition to socialism or a workers' republic. And 20 years later, in the critique of the Gotha program, which we talked about a little bit in our last podcast, he goes on to tell people that everything that we're talking about with regard to socialist policies, whether it be health care, free public education, takes place against the background of the assumption that we have democracy. And he says, if you don't have democracy, you can forget about the rest of it because you'll never win it otherwise. So Marx was very clearly committed uh, to what he called the democratic republic. He fundamentally viewed this as necessary to any transition toward working class power. And as a consequence, while he would have considered what he called faith in the ballot as vulgar democratism, he once referred to it. He says, you're not going to get there by voting alone. He says, but without voting, you won't get there at all. So it's definitely a very important first step for him. He never thought that like there would be, we always think, or I always think that the revolution was we're going to overthrow the czar right away and go from, you know, czarist repression to communism in one fell swoop. That's not the case. That's really not the case. In fact, in every revolution that he was actually a part of, whether it was in 1848 or a support for the Paris Commune in 1871, he was himself not only a member of socialist and communist organizations, but he was a member of so-called democratic associations, which were alliances with the lower middle class because they all shared a commitment to political democracy. And he definitely saw that as a first step in the transition. I don't think except in very repressive cases, he saw violent revolution as sort of the immediate overthrow of a regime. And in fact, he talks at great length in the Communist Manifesto how it's, it's the institutions of political democracy, 
the institutions of trade unions that are really the training ground for the working class. This is where they learn about elections. It's where they learn how to govern themselves, to manage the economy, to implement and manage budgets and policies. So he thought that democracy was an important training ground for the working class in the transition to socialism, but it also for him creates a shell in which workers could go on strike. They could assemble, they could protest, they could do all of these other things in addition to voting to promote their independent interests against the capitalist system. So, so democracy is crucial. Wow. I would add to that, however, he makes it very clear in that respect, democracy is not a gift of the ruling class. As you pointed out, wow. it's something that people have had to fight for, and they've had to fight for it for centuries. They've had to wring it from the ruling class step by step, often through mass protests, often through threats of revolution. And we can talk just, for example, about the history of the United States. I think many people naively just assume that the United States is a democracy. Even just in a formal legal sense, you could raise questions about that in the sense that as of today, you know, it's rarely the case that barely more than half of the population votes even in a U.S. presidential election. Something like 47 to 48 percent of eligible voters never cast a ballot in the United States. And you ask yourself, well, who are those people? Well, 75 percent of them are blue-collar and service sector workers. So even in a system of formal political democracy, we have effectively disenfranchised the working class. And there are all sorts of subtle mechanisms that that happens by. And that's going to eventually take us to this question of voter suppression, because all you need to do uh, as a ruling class is shave off a couple of percentage points here and there in strategic locations, yeah. and you can ensure minority rule, which, of course, is the goal of the Republican Party. If everybody okay. voted based on the demographics of voting, yeah. the Republican Party could almost never win an election, right. except in very few districts. And why yeah. is that? Let's backtrack a second before you tell us why. Are you saying that basically the disinformation coming out of the ruling class, the capitalist class about Marxism is false? That the narrative that this is about violent revolution, this is replacing one theocracy with another is not true? That this democratic leaning of Marx and belief in democratic institutions and worker participation and education and socialism is something that was inherent in Marx. We've never been taught that. I've always been taught the opposite. Well, of course you have, because, <laughs> because the curriculum is defined by the ruling class. Exactly my in point. In fact, Texas just passed a bill requiring the public schools to teach what they call informed American patriotism. The key word there being informed, because I'm sure they're going to tell us what that means. But yeah, the reality is Marx and many Marxists, you know, never foreclosed the possibility of, of a violent revolution. The argument was always that that's because it will be an act of self-defense, that if we win an election, they're not going to let us take power. They're going to expel us, and we're already seeing elements yeah. of that today, Georgia being one of the worst examples that we can talk about, where you know if the side that wins an election is not amenable to the ruling class, they're just not going to let them take office, and they will use the entire machinery of state to try to prevent that if necessary. We saw Trump make an unsuccessful effort to do that, but it's always lurking in the background that as long as you play by their rules, 
as long as they win, they're perfectly happy to pretend that we have a democracy. But when the working class actually starts to win elections, they're going to look for every means possible to start to restrict and pull back democracy. Let me just give you a few examples. Please do. In every intro American government class we teach at a university, there are some basic axioms about voting that we know to be true. The more educated you are, the more likely you are to vote. The wealthier you are, the more likely you are to vote. And the whiter you are, the more likely you are to vote. Well, the obverse, of course, means if you're poor, if you're a minority, if you're young, you're not likely to vote. And of course, who do those people vote for? They vote for liberal Democrats, and increasingly among the young, they vote for socialists like AOC and Bernie Sanders. So Republicans know this, and they know, therefore, that if voter turnout goes up just a few percentage points, that it's going to flood the electorate with liberal to left-wing voters that will just push the Republican Party aside. And I'll give you a simple example in the state of Texas, where Senator John Cornyn was elected U.S. Senator. If African Americans and Hispanics in the state of Texas had simply turned out in the same percentages as white middle-class voters, instead of winning the election by a couple of hundred thousand votes, Cornyn would have lost by a couple of hundred thousand votes. It's just that simple. It's about turnout. And therefore, if the Republican Party and the capitalist class wants to remain in power under the pretense of democracy, they have to ensure that people don't vote. And historically, there have been lots of ways that that's taken place in this country. If you go back through the history of this country, let me just walk you through some of the ways in which the franchise has been restricted in the United States. Yes. Early in our history, in the New England and the Southern states, there were actually religious restrictions. If you didn't pay your church tax to the Congregational Church or to the Episcopalian Church, which were the chosen established churches of the ruling classes, you weren't allowed to vote, regardless of your religious denomination. And that was a class-based system because you know, most of the working class were not members of those denominations. There were property restrictions, very severe ones in many states, where if you didn't own property or have income of a certain level, you were either not allowed to vote or you were not allowed to hold office. In Massachusetts, for example, in the Constitution, you basically had to be the equivalent of a billionaire to even be allowed to run for governor of the state. You had to be pretty wealthy, upper middle class, to be allowed to vote. So those restrictions. We, of course, know that women were not allowed to vote until the 20th century. Right. Took a constitutional amendment. African-Americans were not allowed to vote. Took three constitutional amendments and a civil war. And even after that, there were all sorts of Jim Crow laws, such as the so-called whites-only primary, where blacks were openly excluded from voting in Democratic primaries in the South literacy test, the poll tax, which was the equivalent of two days wages for a working class person. That took a constitutional amendment to abolish in-person registration, which in rural areas meant you had to take a full day off work to go into the county seat to register. That was a prohibition that restricted working class voting. And this will get you citizenship. Do you know that until the 1920s, non-citizens were allowed to vote in most states in the United States. 
you didn't have to be a citizen to vote. It wasn't until the 1920s when we had this massive wave of immigration from Eastern Europe and Southern Europe and China that citizenship restrictions were imposed to try and exclude Catholics, Jews, Asians from the right to vote. So despite its sort of representation of itself to the world as this flourishing democracy, (laughs) the United States has a very long and sinister history of voter suppression and voter restriction that is aimed at people based on their class, gender, and ethnicity and race. And what we're seeing today is just a continuation of a 200-year history of voter restriction. Wow. Okay. Back to Marx. He would have foreseen this, that a capitalist democracy, if you were a capitalist society would do everything it could to remain in power at all costs, that it was never going to uh, allow itself to be dismantled by the working class or the people who were not as affluent as them? That's pretty accurate. And that's why he constantly emphasized yes. that the struggle for democracy comes first. You know, it's not something you can take for granted. It's a battle that you have to win and re-win every day because While you may show up to vote every two years or every four years, behind the scenes, the ruling class is doing everything it can to dismantle that system of electoral representation and exclude you from the right to vote. And they will restrict it at every possible opportunity. Clyde, I'm hearing a little bit of noise in the background. Sounds ominous. What's going on over there in Texas? Well, Jonathan, we're having an absolutely massive thunder and lightning storm here in the background. So what you probably hear is the wrath of God expressing his anger over the fact that Texas just passed a law requiring the public schools to teach informed American patriotism. Well, okay, that makes a lot of sense because something's going on. So I hope the listeners can hear the thunder and lightning in the background. So let's go on. You were going to talk about the specifics of the voter suppression, I believe. Is that right. where we left off? Okay. Yeah. I think as background to understand what's going on right now, you need to go back to the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which was passed when Lyndon Johnson was president of the United States and you had a very liberal Congress in office. The Voting Rights Act of 1965 was really sort of a response to a hundred years of the so-called Jim Crow laws that had been passed in the former states of the Southern Confederacy, the literacy test, the poll tax, which had abolished by constitutional amendment a couple of years earlier, the whites only primary, which excluded blacks from voting in the Democratic Party primary at a time when the Democratic Party was the only party in the Southern states. And so, you know, what was passed was the Voting Rights Act, which essentially federalized the electoral process, at least initially in those 13 southern states of the Confederacy. And there were many, many provisions, but one of the most important provisions of the Voting Rights Act was a provision which required the southern states to submit their redistricting plans every 10 years to the U.S. Department of Justice for approval. And the reason for that was because Southern states were also using gerrymandering, multi-member districts and things of that nature to try to suppress black representation through the electoral process. So one of the things that was included was basically this requirement that 
any redistricting and reapportionment plan in the southern states had to first be approved by the U.S. Department of Justice or approved by district court in Washington, D.C. before it could move forward. And that was part of an effort to stop the use of gerrymandering for racial exclusion. Now, what happened was in 2013, the U.S. Supreme Court under Justice John Roberts ruled that this provision was unconstitutional that elections were a state responsibility under the Constitution and the federal government had no authority to intrude into the electoral process. That sort of took the states out from under federal jurisdiction and federal supervision with respect to passing voter registration laws and gerrymandering and all these things. So it gave them carte blanche to go back to what they'd been doing. Now, in addition to that, the Voting Rights Act has to be reauthorized every five years. And in 2015, following on this Supreme Court ruling, of course, Mitch McConnell, who is the majority leader in the Senate out of Kentucky, says, oh, you know, there's no racism in the South anymore. This law is really quite unnecessary. So it was never reauthorized. And let me add that in response to voter suppression against Hispanic voters, other states were added to that original list over the years, including places like Arizona were brought within its jurisdiction. So basically what happened in 2013 and 2015 under a conservative Supreme Court and a Republican-led majority in the Senate, the Voting Rights Act was essentially dismantled and gutted, which gave states free reign to go back to their old ways. And what we're seeing is that they've very quickly gone back to a variety of techniques designed to suppress voter participation. To give you an example, right now, 361 bills have been introduced in 47 states that are designed to restrict voting rights in the various states. Every single one of these bills has been introduced by a Republican legislator. And you have to ask yourself, why is it that Republicans fear high voter turnout? And we've already talked about the answer because we know that if voter turnout goes up, it's going up because African-Americans are voting, Hispanics are voting, young people under 30 are voting, Asian-Americans are voting, the working class and the poor are voting, the very people that the Republican Party does not want to vote. Now, what exactly are they actually doing here? And there are a number of, of techniques that they're employing now, one of which is purging voter rolls. There have been a number of ways to do this. One way they're doing it is saying, well, if you haven't voted regularly, say over the last four years, you're automatically going to be purged from the voter rolls. So instead of assuming that you have a lifetime voter registration, we're going to remove you with the expectation people will show up. And by the way, people aren't notified that they're purged. So they show up to vote and find that they're no longer a registered voter. Another technique that's being used is voter ID, saying that you need to show up to the polls with a driver's license, a passport, or something of that character in order to vote. Now, you might say to yourself, well, what's wrong with showing your driver's license? Except that we know statistically what that means. First of all, two-thirds of Americans don't have a passport. About a third of Americans 
don't have a driver's license. And why? Well, we know increasingly that young urban voters don't drive cars. They prefer to use Uber or mass public transportation. If you're poor and you can't afford one, if you're elderly, your license privileges have been revoked. So we know that voter ID falls heavily on the very voters Republicans want to exclude. It's not a neutral policy. It's an exclusionary policy aimed at the young, minorities, and the poor. Okay. I'm going to accept everything you said because I know it to be true. But I guess my question is this. Who are they doing this on behalf of? We noticed that all of a sudden the business community in Texas, in Georgia, the sports community have said, wait a minute, we're not doing this. This isn't what we had in mind. We don't have to do this. In fact, we're against this. So who is this, you know, cabal of Republicans trying to protect by using voter suppression? I don't see their constituency now. Yeah, that's a really good point that you raise here. And and we've touched upon this a few times in the past. Uh, The Republican Party is historically the party of corporate business and and small business. They're the party of business. And certainly among big corporations, we're seeing that they are not supporting these voter suppression initiatives. They're coming out against them. So in one respect, what we're seeing is that the Republican Party has become increasingly detached and dissociated from its historical electoral base and from its donors. But it's certainly acting to protect itself. It's acting to get itself reelected and is basically telling business to stay out of its political business. So there is a real question here as, as to who they're serving other than themselves and as to what the constituency for this would be. Certainly there's a constituency among white supremacists, which are increasingly becoming the voter base of the Republican Party. So it may well be that we're seeing a realignment and a shifting in the social base of the Republican Party, that it's sort of cutting itself off from business and really just becoming the party of of the the mass white supremacist movement is all you can see. Uh, And of course, because of that, the old line Republicans are actually starting to talk about creating a new conservative party. Yeah. But yet at the same time, we've heard Senator Cruz and one other senator talk about being the party of the working class now. Like they're going to turn their back on the country club donors that have been their base and the small business owners and the large industrialists. And they're going to reach out to the working man. What's that about? And going back to one of our original podcasts, of course, that's preposterous. They're becoming (laughs) the the party of the lumpen proletariat, (laughs) not of the working class. Okay. And I just want to throw out a yeah. couple more things here that are being done. They are restricting early voting. They are restricting mail-in voting, restricting disability access. And, of course, the most outrageous one that we saw in Georgia, actually making it a crime yeah. to provide food or water to somebody standing in line in a hot Georgia day while they wait to vote. And their rationale for that is it falls under a a provision that you can't pay somebody or provide them a gift in order to vote. So they're basically making it, if I give you a bottled water while you stand in line, I'm trying to bribe you to vote. Is there going to be blowback? Where's the blowback going to come from on this? Is is Stacey Abrams going to re-rally all the newly disenfranchised people and redouble her efforts? Is it going to be harder for her to get out the vote or is this going to work? Good question again. 
there's certainly going to be a, a redoubled effort to move against this. But of course, remember, we are right now in the process of state legislatures beginning to reapportion yeah. uh, and redraw the district lines. The Republican Party still controls most state legislatures. They're going to have a free hand to gerrymander like crazy. And by the way, the U.S. Supreme Court also recently ruled that gerrymandering for partisan advantage is not unconstitutional. So they will conceal their racism behind partisan advantage, which has been ruled okay. constitutional. They're going to gerrymander these districts dramatically. It will be incredibly difficult for Democrats to win elections after this reapportionment. So basically, Democrats will have to win not by 2%, just in order to win by a half percent. They have to win by 4 or 5%. They're going to have to really turn people out in large numbers. Whether the Republicans succeed, I don't know. They are succeeding in putting in place these voter restrictions. Whether people are going to be angry enough and incentivized enough to turn out will be another question. But I think the real test will become the real possibility that Republicans take both houses of Congress in 2022. And that, I think, will be a wake-up call that will again put people in the streets like we've seen over the last year or two. Okay, that brings me to a really seminal question. Did Marx perceive this, too, as being a contradiction to a, quote, revolution? Did he think that the ruling capitalist class would act in such a repressive manner that it would basically disenfranchise large sections of the population and rule illegally, rule by force, rule by coercion, rule by voter suppression? And that would create the dynamics for, like, people to be really fed up? Given the necessity to do so, yes. In fact, going back to the Communist Manifesto, he talks about how capitalism creates its own grave diggers. That's what I was getting at. Thank you. Yeah. He actually said those words, capitalism creates its own grave diggers? Those exact words. Could you just expand on that a little bit? That's what I'm getting at. That's really interesting. Yeah, essentially what he was saying that, of course, for there to be a capitalist system, there has to be a working class that shows up to work. And as the system develops and becomes more sophisticated, you have to organize those workers. You have to educate those workers. They become more savvy. They begin to demand more rights. So eventually you have to extend some level of political democracy. They become more politically sophisticated over time. And at some point, you know, they raise the obvious question of, hey, wait, you told us that all men are created equal. So why is Jeff Bezos out buying a $550 million boat yeah. to play around in and we're getting paid minimum wage? It's not equality. You told us we live in a democracy and yet you're telling us we don't have the right to vote. So there are all these contradictions in the system that eventually sort of come to a head. And in that sense, you know, Marx has already capitalism inevitably creates its own grave diggers to the extent that it creates a working class that eventually decides uh, we're going to take your egalitarian and democratic rhetoric seriously, and we're going to implement that system. Wow. That's a very interesting analysis. One thing I want to bring up, though, in fairness and in intellectual honesty, is it seems that, you know, since Marx wrote in the 19th century, you know, we've had communism in Russia, China, Eastern Europe, Cuba, Venezuela, and many other countries, and they never want to give up any power either. 
I mean, basically, I, I wrote powerful ruling governments of whatever persuasion are not interested in peaceful transfers of power. So, you know, his analysis about capitalism not wanting to give up power really kind of holds true for everybody. I mean, you know, the Berlin Wall and, you know, people floating on rubber rafts to get the hell out of Cuba, everybody running across the rivers in uh, Eastern Europe to leave Hungary and Romania. It hasn't been a pretty picture where, quote, socialists or communists have taken over either. That's absolutely correct. And that's one of the reasons why Marx emphasized the importance of democracy as an essential component of a working class movement. Means and ends are not divorced from each other. He says you can't use dictatorial means to implement democracy. Democracy has to be part of the fabric of a working class and socialist movement from beginning to end. And if it's not, you will end up with the types of failed experiments you saw in places like the Soviet Union. Basically, what he saw socialist parties were as incubators of a future society. This was the system and the place where people would learn democracy, learn self-governance, learn about civil liberties. You can't have an authoritarian party that institutes a democratic system. It never works. Listeners, thanks again for tuning in to Out of the Box with Jonathan Russo. Your input is valuable to us, and we'd really like to hear from you. Please send us an email anytime with feedback at ootbwithjrusso at gmail.com and follow us on our Twitter page, ootbwithjrusso. This has been a copyrighted production of Grapevine Incorporated. All rights reserved.